Welcome to Persuasion in the Public Mind. I'm Mark Bourdine. Persuasion and language are linked on several levels, and today we're going to look at many aspects of language used by persuaders. First, the most effective persuaders tell stories with a message that suggests some action be taken by the audience. These stories are structured similar to most mainstream movies, having a beginning, middle, and ending. The first act consists of an introduction to the main character. Act 2 reveals a confrontation or obstacle that our main character must overcome. And in the third act, our hero succeeds against the obstacle and there is resolution. Tim Borchers, author of Persuasion in the Media Age, further explains this concept. Storytelling is such an effective way for persuaders to get their point across because it's a very natural way for us to understand situations and events. And if the persuader is strategic enough, they can actually position the, the, the audience to take action and actually bring them in and be part of the story. And we see a lot of politicians who are very effective at doing this. They talk about their own life. They talk about uh, other people. And then really at the end, it's a call to action for the audience to step forward and to, to be the heroes, for the audience to uh, take action by supporting their candidacy because that will help them to be successful. Also, a lot of um, television commercials uh, do do the same thing. They they tell a story and you, you follow along and then it gets to the point where you are supposed to take action based on what they are asking you to do. So, Tim, in your book, you also talk about the stylistic or structural choices persuaders make when using language in their messages. Would you describe some of those choices for us? Sure. Language intensity is one way that they can use powerful words to get their point across. Some research suggests that more, more powerful language, more powerful words can help the persuader be more persuasive. And so instead of using words that, that don't have much meaning, if you use a word that has a, a lot of meaning, uh, that has a lot of power, a lot of passion, uh, persuaders can be more successful. Mm -hmm. They also can use imagery. So using metaphors, uh, using sometimes flowery language to help the persuader get their point across can help the audience by involving them. You can probably think of people who have told you stories and if they're kind of bland and not very exciting, you're probably not as involved in the story than if they use really interesting language and colorful language and flowery language right. and you're often more more involved. And also there's a, a whole a whole series of called rhetorical figures that going back to the ancient Greeks, they identified ways of using language that helps to be memorable, that helps to be persuasive. Some of our most popular phrases that you remember persuaders saying often use these these turns of phrase, such as when John F. Kennedy said, ask not what your country should do for you, ask what you should do for your country, he was using called something called antithesis. So those are some other ways. And finally, metaphor is a, is a very popular way. Um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech used the metaphor of cashing a check. And that cashing a check kind of ran through his whole speech and became a very powerful way for people to understand that um, attitudes towards uh, discrimination and prejudice should change because these uh, people who were being discriminated against were, be were being given a bad check and that we needed to make good on that check as a country and provide the same rights and opportunities for the people that he was supporting. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, you know, persuaders often use language to structure a reality that is favorable to their message. What, uh, what are the most notable techniques they use to accomplish this? Well, one way would be to scapegoat. So Kenneth Burke was a theorist, and he said that persuaders are often able to uh, create pollution or show what pollution exists in a, in a system, and they're able to create a, a story around that pollution, and then they're able to identify someone to, as being responsible for that pollution, and then that person should be removed from the situation or they should be punished in some way, and when doing so, then we remove the pollution and we restore order. So he he said persuaders can often create a reality in which someone is seen as a scapegoat, and then the audience is able to take action against that scapegoat and to remove them from the situation. As you watch a political campaign unfold, as, as we're as we're seeing with the 2020 election, you can you can easily see scapegoats in almost any of the politicians' language, where they're talking about someone being responsible, and we can't vote for that person. Vote for me because I'm going to purify the situation. So that's probably a pretty popular way that that persuaders are able to create a social reality based on language. Another way that persuaders can create reality through their languages by naming. And that's by calling people or situations, uh, particular types of um, negative terms implies a lot of meaning and carries a lot of weight with people. Uh, Hitler, for instance, was able to name Jewish people in ways that allowed him to mobilize the country of Germany to uh, exterminate those those people. So the power of naming for Hitler was was a critical persuasive tool that he used uh, in 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 the lead up to World War II. Framing is another way, and that's how we define different situations. And we can define situations in ways that help our solution be seen as the as the right solution for it. And there's a, a lot of different theories out there about framing situations. Kenneth Burke said that we often frame situations quite often by focusing on either a person who's responsible or a scene that's responsible. So if you think about some of the debates that we have in, in politics today, uh, you can think about um, sometimes the, the Republicans or conservatives often focus on people and they, they frame situations so that people are responsible for it. But Democrats or liberals are more often to focus on a scene. They're able to focus on uh, maybe a structure of racism or a structure of poverty in our society that causes certain kinds of situations to occur. So those are a couple of good examples of how uh, politicians can use framing to focus either on a person who's responsible for a situation or for a scene that's responsible for the for a situation. And this um, idea of framing, um, could this uh, fall under the heading of uh, what we call spinning an issue? Sure. And spinning an issue is is a kind of a common term just when you're trying to control the the meaning of a particular situation. And quite often when you when you see someone get into trouble, for instance, they try to spin that situation to make it be favorable for themselves or oftentimes political actions that are taken. Uh, there's some spin involved to help the audience see that that what the person did was actually a good thing when there might be people who think that it's a bad thing. Obviously, there's. Um, there's people spin situations all the time, and, and usually it's it's perfectly fine because they're just trying to kind of put the situation in the best light. 
but oftentimes spin can be misleading or it can be deceptive. So it's really important to uh, listen carefully when, when politicians or their spokespersons are spinning situations or, or trying to explain an action that they took. And uh, when we say someone is using electronic eloquence uh, when communicating through the media, how, how is this different from the stylistic choices you already mentioned? So electronic eloquence is a theory that was uh, devised by Kathleen Hall Jamison, and it really focuses on media and really reflects the mediated style of rhetoric today and what we experience through media. So she talked about personification, and that's where um, persuader will build intimacy in their, by, with their audience by trying to use some kind of an individual to embody their, their message. So politicians, you might often hear them referring to specific examples of people when they talk about different situations, and those examples are to stand for or to help the audience kind of identify with what they're talking about. It's also uh, when we have the, the personal touch through television, uh, self-disclosure is a, is a common persuasive tool. It builds intimacy between the persuader and the audience, and it's something that, that television, because we're, we're seeing them up close and personal, we're seeing them in our living rooms quite often, uh, or we're seeing them you know, as, we, as we walk around watching our, our screens on our devices, but we do get to, to experience them up close and, and personal. So self-disclosure is, is a critical um, part of that theory. Also being conversational. If you compare the, the kind of political talk today with what had George Washington or Abraham Lincoln used, you see that it's very different. Uh, they, they use very uh, large, bigger terms, longer sentences back then. Our sentences today are much shorter. The terms are much more familiar. Um, so there's just a, a more conversational style that takes place as well. Mm -hmm. And also there's something called verbal distillation. And that's where she says persuaders try to use maybe symbols or pictures to, to represent uh, certain situations, or they, they really try to just boil down. Uh, think about a tweet, for instance. Uh, you get 280 characters to try to make your point. And that's probably a really good example of verbal distillation, where you really boil everything down into its most essential components, and that's what you communicate to the audience. The final aspect of language that we'll consider is its relationship to ideology and power. Theorists contend that when we use language, we do more than communicate an idea. We also communicate something about how we think of ourselves, others, and the world we live in. Meaning is not set in language. That is, words do not have, uh, that words have arbitrary meaning. So people are constantly trying to contest those meanings. They're trying to challenge those meanings. And they're, they're trying to take control of what uh, a word or a situation means because that might work to their advantage. And there are some, some terms that, that have become so powerful in our society that it's, that it's hard to challenge them. A word like freedom, for instance. Uh, you don't see a lot of people challenging freedom. And in fact, you see a lot of politicians really embracing that term. Uh, there is a faith and freedom coalition uh, that Vice President Pence spoke at recently. And you really see where that brings together faith and freedom, two of those very strong um, strong words that have a, a clear ideology, a clear meaning, and something that, that he's trying to grab control of and trying to use in a, in a persuasive way. There's also a, a lot of power in how we, how we name different events or situations. Um, 
these terms create power relationships. So we have some people in society who are more able to have their meanings expressed than others. So there are some people who have experiences that largely go unnoticed because they haven't had the power to tell their story or they haven't had their, their power to name their situation. Um, sexual harassment might be a, an example where, you know, many years ago we didn't have a term for that. And so it was very difficult to, to explain that phenomenon. But once we developed the term for it, then we're able to identify situations that fit that meaning and it allows uh, people to better express themselves, better express their situations in a way that, that society can understand. But even with, with that example, you can see with the with a lot of recent events that there's still a lot of um, contention around what is sexual harassment, what, what constitutes sexual harassment. So there's still a real challenge to, to determine what that term means and determine what events fit in that, in that situation. Terms and slogans are often pregnant with ideological meaning. This is especially true with political speech. Terms like freedom, liberty, or support our troops suggest much, but may offer little concerning the specific meaning intended by the communicator. Linguist Noam Chomsky addresses this point in his book, Media Control. He writes, You want to create a slogan that nobody's going to be against and everybody's going to be for. Nobody knows what it means because it doesn't mean anything. Its crucial value is that it diverts your attention from a question that does mean something. Do you support our policy? I'd like to thank Tim Borchers for his insights and remind everyone that we've got some great resources on this topic listed under the episode description. Persuasion in the Public Mind is available on Apple, Google, Spotify, and Stitcher. A complete list of platforms can be found at anchor.fm forward slash persuasion. Thanks for listening. See you next time.